0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Nourish and Flourish is a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network.
2: Nourish and Flourish. Handcrafted, ad-free. Print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Subscribe at nourishandflourish.site. This week on Meetin and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds.
0: And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well, because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, Right. Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty, and the jazz as musicians. It's like it all goes
2: together very well, you know? Check out Meetin' Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from full service radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today's guest is animal welfare activist Leah Garces, the current president of Mercy for Animals and the author of the new book, Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. Leah, well, thanks for being here.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Sure. So where are you calling in from? Atlanta. Okay, great. I, yeah, I, I wish we could have made it work um, to have you in studio, but um, it's better, better to call in and talk over the phone than, than not at all. <laughs> for
1: sure, for sure.
2: Um, and Atlanta, is that where um, Mersey for Animals is based or do you just work remotely?
1: I work remotely. Um, We're loosely headquartered in L.A., but frankly, our 120 staff that we have globally work remotely. So only about 10 of our staff go to the L.A. office. Okay. That's the way of the world these days.
2: Right, right. <laughs> and um, I want to... So I want to mostly talk about your book. I have a million questions. I just actually <laughs> finished it yesterday. Oh, right. um, so what I want to get into to that. Um, but before that, you know, I was thinking, um, at least in the time that I've been hosting the Farm Report, I don't think that I've ever had an animal welfare activist on. I've had lots of farmers and lots of people working in ag. Um, oh. So um, I I've thought maybe you should just... Um, give a little bit of information about what Mercy for Animals does.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so surprising. You haven't had anybody who works in animals. Yeah. Right? I mean, we've talked yeah, a lot welfare. about, yeah.
2: yeah, we talked about industrial animal agriculture and, and different, mm-hmm. you know, topics, but yeah, I haven't really had someone in that space so far.
1: Okay. Well, Mercy for Animals, our mission is uh, to construct a compassionate food system And we do that through two ways. One is by reducing the suffering of animals that are currently uh, in animal agriculture. So that means getting rid of things like cages and crates and close confinement systems, while also working towards ending the exploitation of the animals altogether. So that means increasingly having people eat less meat and eat more plant-based products. So it's a mix of both, and we work towards advocating for both, whether that be in policy through legislative work, Or in corporate work. So we work with companies to have them improve their policies or offer more vegan options um, or get rid of the worst practices like cages or crates. And we also work really hard to build a strong movement. So we have a strong organizing principle of creating leaders in communities that are advocating for constructing this compassionate food system. We do a lot of different things, but the main goal is what you probably share with us which is to create that compassionate system.
2: Right, absolutely. And the the organization that you came from had the word compassion in the title, right? Com- it's, uh, that's right. Yeah, compassion in right. world farming. Um, yeah. So um, that word it's is all about
1: compassion. That's right. Right. Which nobody can disagree with,
2: right? Y- that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you do, that it's like uh, <laughs> it's <probably> just- <laughs> a- <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and that that's a great segue into um, of my first question. You know, this idea of compassion because. Um, you know, your book has this concept in the subtitle, "Turning Adversaries into Allies," and um, it's there's this theme of sort of unlikely allies, and uh-huh. um, this really struck me because as somebody who um, talks more to farmers and has covered a lot of contract farmers and knows wow. the systems, um, it was it was like a little bit surprising to me um, just to think about this idea of. Farmers being considered adversaries and you know enemies and <laughs> you, you know and so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that in animal welfare activism um, is that often attention like are farmers seen as adversaries?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, so the majority of farmers are engaged in the activity that we're trying to end. Right. Right. So obviously they become part of the problem. Right. As they're seen by in the most, you know, black and white sense. So we're talking about a whole subset of people who their job is to bring animals to slaughter, which is what, in a in a system that is very unjust, unfair, and abusive to the animals, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously that is a problem for an animal advocate. Right. And we, unfortunately, so a lot of the work we do as well, as you know, uh, because of, laws like ag gag or we we in order to even portray the system we often have to go in as undercover investigators mm-hmm. right so the majority of our food and farming system when it comes to animals is out of sight out of mind on purpose you cannot walk into a chicken farm and take a picture of it normally mm-hmm. and you cannot normally walk into a feedlot a dairy farm etc a pig farm it, it's like a nuclear waste site like you have to wear full gear You have to have, like, many written permissions to do this. And so it's a very hidden and secretive industry for the most part. And therefore, in order for us to do our job, which is just to shed a light on this, this reality for animals, we send in undercover investigators to collect footage and bear witness to what's happening. As a result, those farmers also see us as adversaries right. because we are coming in under the cover of something else and taking photos of the reality. And then, what has traditionally happened? So, usually, a farmer and the activist are portrayed in the media as very adversarial because here comes an activist, they film something the farmer is doing that is definitely cruel and not okay. Then, the big, um, you know, company like Tyson or Purdue break the contract with that farmer because of the thing that they did mm-hmm. and then the farmer is out of a job right
2: so right and blame whatever happened solely right. on that farmer and say it's right. oh they were just a bad apple that's not how we right. told them to do things yeah right
1: and so my my work is really about reframing this as it isn't us against them whether you be a farmer or an advocate but it's all of us against an unjust system that's caught us all in its claws and we have to, you know, work on it, on, on creating a new system together um, and not see each other as us versus them.
2: Right. And so ha- talk a little bit about moments where, you know, you ended up working with some contract farmers in poultry and, and what, it, what it took to find that common ground.
1: So the very first, person I ever worked with was someone named Craig Watts, and he was introduced to me by a journalist who was writing a story about antibiotics. And I eventually worked up the courage to ask if I could go and not only visit his farm, but bring a camera. And for whatever reason, Craig agreed. And I, and I didn't know why at, the, at that point. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I drove from my home in Decatur, in sort of East Atlanta to his home in Fairmont, North Carolina, about a five-hour drive. And literally, as I was driving there, I was so scared because of this adversarial relationship that is in the media, where I didn't know why he wanted me to come visit. I was very convinced this was some kind of ambush. Mm. You know, why would he invite me into his home? Usually, we're totally against each other yeah and I even gave my husband the address of the farm and said look if I don't come back look for me buried (laughs) in the chicken litter I'm probably going to be rotting away and composting there (laughs) I was really unnerved right and when I showed up you know he was in his overalls with paint and on it and he's clearly not a reason to dress up or anything and he just was like come on in and we sat on the floor of his living room and he told me his story. and it was the very first time I had had any exposure to a, 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 like to the the person a mm. person, the real person who is in these farms. And my kind of fear and my anger that I had towards him totally dissipated into something else, which was shame. Like mm. I had I was very ashamed I had never thought about this human being. And why in the world would he choose a job where he's essentially, an indentured servant yeah. slaughtering innocent animals. Like that is not something people would, it's not like a dream job for anybody. So it's, you know, and I can't speak to, I know chicken farming very well. I don't know the other ones as well, but I can speak to chicken farming not being a great system for the human being or the animal. And that connection for me was made when I sat and listened to somebody who I had never not only I, it's not even that I hadn't bothered to listen. I've never had the chance. It's like when you don't have the opportunity to even meet with somebody different than you. Yeah. To them
2: in well, a like real you, way. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it's, it's really hard for those connections to be made because the system is so closed off from, right. you know, it's like people say, you know, know your farmer, get to know where your food is from. But when it right. comes to something like you know, industrial poultry, like you said, I mean, you try to go to a poultry farm and there's like hazard signs and you can't, you know, there's definitely no chance you're going to be able to have a conversation with that person. Um, It's, or at least it's going to be really hard, right? And
1: credit goes to Craig for being willing to have that conversation with me. And, you know, my intention going there was like, oh, I had been trying for years to get footage from inside one of these farms legally and openly and had failed. This was like some kind of last attempt. So I just wanted to go there, get footage, and get out. Yeah. And it turned into something else, which is like me having this, uh, like this total woke moment where I was like, I can't leave. I haven't thought of what it's like to live in the poorest county of rural North Carolina and not, and like a place where the tobacco industry bottomed out and there's no other jobs and the chicken industry comes to town and they offer you a contract and you go dream job, right? Yeah and then a couple years later suddenly you find yourself struggling to pay off that loan because the chickens get sick and you don't get paid for dead birds and you're falling behind on your loan and now you're trapped and there's no way out and you have to keep doing it forever essentially
2: yeah well um, yeah and and this the relationship with with Craig really tra- uh, changed the trajectory of your work and it really changed Craig's life in massive ways too. I uh-huh. I actually saw him twice in the last six months. <laughs> really? Um, well, he, you know he's so active now. Um, he was in D.C. Um, uh-huh. doing some work uh, to organize for the the rule the Packers and Stockyards Act um, update the Gypsy rules and uh-huh. um, and then he was at a conference last week last week or the week before talking about his experiences and um, so he's sort of become one of the few visible faces of this world since he was willing to speak out. I think people go to now, everybody in the industry and, you know, advocates look to him to talk to, to speak to what's, what's really happening because he's willing to to speak out.
1: Yeah. He's become, he's become an advocate. He quit, he quit chicken farming. He doesn't ever want to raise animals again. And he wants to just advocate, like I do, he wants to advocate for a better food and farming system that is, compassionate to everyone including the farmer and the animal and the consumer
2: right well and so so this all this all kind of came together you worked with craig um it's obviously a much longer story in the book about how (laughs) um you worked with him to release videos of of the farm and but something you said before really really struck me which is you said you know you realized that it wasn't me against him it was all of us against an unjust system Um, Which, which makes sense, but you know, people also create systems, right? And so it's it's interesting too, because the other unlikely ally, I guess, in the book is the chicken companies themselves. So you start you start working with companies like Purdue to make to help them make changes to their systems. And I guess I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what made you open to that possibility having had this entire career committed to dismantling yeah. the system, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, it was a very, um, again, I, after, after years of advocating against these companies, um, a couple years after two years after I had been, well, a year after I had been, uh, released the viral video with Craig, Uh, I read a New York Times article in which Jim Perdue was quoted at the very, very end. It was not about this, but at the very end, he said, we need happier birds. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is he saying? Happier? (laughs) We need happy? not like we need healthier, but we need happier birds,
0: which is admitting they're
1: not happy right? Mm -hmm. And that they need to do better. And so I wrote them at that stage and said, look, I don't know what's happened in the last year. I can see you're thinking about this. Can we please sit down? You need happier birds? I want you to have happier birds. And we actually have more in common, probably. And so that led to them agreeing to meet with me, which then led to some negotiation over many months over them creating their first animal care policy. Mm -hmm. And they released that uh, in July 2016. So two years almost after Craig and I put out that video. And it was the first of any kind. And it was very honest and underwhelming at first, right? But it was them saying this is where we're at and we're going to be transparent. They said we're going to commit to putting more windows in the houses, which was something, you know, we had criticized them for not doing mm-hmm. or give the birds more space and we're going to explore a different breed of bird. But Year on year, we keep coming back to the table and we keep making progress. I and mean, yeah, they have a lot further to go. But we keep making progress. And for me, I realized that I am not in control of a single chicken. And the factory farmers are, yeah. and where the farmers are, the chicken farmers are, and Purdue and Tyson and these other people are. And so in order for me to change the system i'm just i'm gonna have to talk to them they have to make they're the ones in charge of you know Purdue's in charge of 680 million chickens a year so if i want to change the system i have to enter their space i have to be uncomfortable and do those conversations and see what i can do um i think there's only so far of a response you'll get from just uh, putting pressure and the. The, um, the purpose of pressure has to be to get to the negotiation table. So just being angry and putting pressure and protesting is is not enough. You have to, that, The end goal of that has to be to get them to the table, to have a conversation, to make a plan and a roadmap together on what they're going to do, because also, I'm not in charge of a chicken, not right. one. Yeah. So that's, that was the kind of, oh, I can affect the lives of 680 million chickens per year if I start working with them, however uncomfortable that makes me. So there was this, I have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I don't like it. And it it makes me feel like sometimes I'm compromising my values. And I'm not sure if I can trust them. And they're not sure if they can trust me. But it's better than just being angry.
2: Right. Well, and it's, I I guess I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, these are real changes you're talking about, but they're incremental changes, right, within Uh a system that a lot of people think shouldn't exist in the first place. And so do you ever worry that helping them make these incremental changes, like putting, you know, windows in for the chickens, which makes them maybe a little more active, a little happier, It kind of makes the system look better and makes them look good Uh and like, wow, look, Purdue gave the chickens windows when, you know, the environmental destruction involved in CAFOs like ammonia and particulate matter that people are breathing in and, you know, nitrogen runoff from the farming of the feed, like all those things are still happening. So does it give them like, um, does it put a halo around what they're doing and make it look a lot better and distract from the other stuff?
1: Well, we're very careful about the language we use. so we don't say, like, victory, we say progress, mm. and you have further to go. Right. Like, we never give them the full halo until they meet, you know, the full place we want them to get to. And that is very, a, a mistake can be easily made in this conversation. You can, and, and you have to check yourself all the time when you're having this conversation, because you become close to these people, they're human beings, Mm -hmm. and you find the commonalities, and you want to be liked, and you want them to like you. And you have to remember, you're the critical friend, you're not the friend friend, Mm -hmm. you're the the one who is representing the animals and progressing, or reducing the animal suffering. That's how I like, is my for my like, checkbook, checkbox, I'm always going, is this reducing the animal suffering? Yes, then keep going this is progress. This is progress. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I get criticized a lot for exactly what you have just put out there. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, they're just using you. Um, And I certainly have been called a sellout for that kind of activity. Um, Mm -hmm. But I have to kind of think, what would the animals want? And the analogy I often use is imagine you were on death row in a horrible prison would you want someone just advocating for the end of your death sentence or advocating for the end of your death sentence while improving your prison condition? and mm. you would obviously want both and so just, and and you might have people saying oh no you're like you're you know putting your you're somehow being used to say the prison is okay right and i never say the prison is okay i just say we're reducing their suffering and they can and that's the common ground too because they want it who could who can disagree with reducing suffering who can disagree with that like making an animal's life better um and that's and and surprisingly when i sat down with jim purdue 90 percent of our goal was similar it's just the last 10 percent that wasn't so don't focus on that part focus on the part where we have commonality 90%?
2: 90%? Really?
1: <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, that's what they say. I have to admit that's what they, that was yeah. his quote. I wouldn't say 90. <laughs> I'd say like 50. Right. But they, it, he literally was quoted as saying like 90%. We did a, a panel together in London yeah, and we were together on this panel and it was this really crazy moment for me and to be sitting on a panel with Jim Perdue right. and him, him as well, you know, and it was based face, on Facebook Live. So I was like, oh God, I can't even imagine what the comments are going to be. And him too,
2: you know, you yeah. had the
1: whole industry watching him. He wasn't making any friends sitting on a panel with me either. Yeah. Um, and he said 90% of, he thinks that 90% is the same. Uh, you know, we're, we're on the same page for 90% of, of what we want, which is to make the lives of the chickens better. I think there's more to that, but,
2: right? Well, because um, I mean, at the end of the day, ultimately, you would still prefer <laughs> yeah. that chickens don't ever get slaughtered for food in Correct. your in your ideal world, right? <laughs> Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. Right.
1: And my and and you know, you would think, okay, that's never going to happen with Purdue, but Purdue announced last after working with them, they announced last summer they're working on a plant based chicken nugget. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine, like a a company that is a chicken company saying they're going to work on a plant-based chicken nugget. And not only that, Purdue said in a Bloomberg article, our job is to be a premium protein company, and nothing about that says it has to only come from animals. So it's not far-fetched, actually, to think that we're in this protein revolution where people are going to start eating less meat of higher quality, and the rest of the protein is going to come from somewhere else. And if, you don't, if companies like Purdue or Tyson don't step into that space, then they're just going to be missing out. Yeah. They're going to be missing
2: out on what consumers want. Well, yeah. And on, I mean, I think the economic reality is changing and they see that and they see that there's um, totally. money to be made in the, the plant-based market. So um, speaking of plants, um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk Great. a little bit more about um, some of the work you're doing in terms of getting farmers to switch to growing plants. Uh, we'll be okay. right back. Nourish & Flourish is a handcrafted, ad-free integration of print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Explore emerging trends in nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and travel. Nourish & Flourish, thought-provoking content and innovative links to videos allow you to view the future of food and healthy living. Join us on a journey of discovery from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to the Farm Report. I'm here with Leah Garces, the president of Mercy for Animals, and the author of the new book Grilled. Um, we've been talking about um, animal agriculture, mostly about chicken, uh, because of the book. Um, and you know, we left on this left off on this point about this shift away from animal um protein to plant-based proteins. And I actually I took a, a quote out of your book I um underlined, which is my kids and my nieces and nephew will grow up in a world where it might be more normal than not for a nugget to be full of plants, not chicken. Um, and mm-hmm. I thought you just sound so confident about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. I'm so that, you know, my question is what what makes you confident that that shift is inevitable?
1: Well, first of all, um, there are the environmental pressures that we're under right now Mm -hmm. that are just, you can't ignore them. Um, A third of our arable land right now is used to grow feed to feed factory farmed animals instead of ourselves. Right. And all of that land is sprayed with immeasurable chemicals. We're cutting down ecologically critical habitat like the Amazon, which is burning up right now. These are real crises that are at our doorstep. And our kids are, you know, the kids, the people who are going to be the grownups of tomorrow, they see this and they know the connection with what we eat, with eating animals, the connection. So you see people like Greta out there saying, I'm vegan because I'm an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. And there's a limit to the land we have. There's a limit to the air we have and the water we have. And we can't afford to put unnecessary pressures and industrial animal agriculture is an unnecessary pressure. Mm -hmm. So I think that crisis alone is pushing us and you see people all around us and companies and governments all around us adopting um, these meatless policies. So the, you know, the, the Ministry of Environment in Germany, for example, decided that they would, they would be plant based for all of their programs, their catering, everything because of the environmental impact. Or um, the Chinese government said that they had a goal of 50 percent less meat consumption as as a country uh, by 2050. So Mm -hmm. these are – I feel like the environmental pressure is so severe that um, we're starting – and then we're starting to see real viable options in the market that people – they don't care whether it comes from chicken or plants, you know? Right. So you see examples of that, like the Impossible Burger at Burger King, which is out, the Impossible Whopper, which is out selling the regular Whopper right now at Yeah. Burger King. Well, and it's delicious, and you can't tell the difference, and it doesn't have cholesterol, and it doesn't take away from the Amazon.
2: So why wouldn't you? you right. Know? Well, and, but that's, that's an interesting point because the, you know, the switch that's happening and a lot of the switch that you talk about in the book is, is based on this shift from, not from meat to like eating grains or legumes, but eating these plant-based protein alternatives like the Impossible Burger. And I mean, the Impossible Burger is a really good example of um, a plant-based alternative that isn't really being produced in the most environmentally, uh, Sustainable way, you know, the main ingredient is roundup-ready soy, and so there's lots of pesticides. You know, being grown in monocultures, it's still, of course, going to be a much smaller overall footprint than industrial meat because that soy is then not being fed to an animal, right? (laughs) Um, Right. But how how do we make sure in this conversation about switching to plant-based that the plant-based alternatives we're switching to are also good for the planet, not just maybe like a little bit better?
1: Yeah, and I live in that world of trying to decide where to draw that line. Mm -hmm. So um, my motto is don't let perfect be the enemy of better. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to start by getting rid of the worst things. And whatever takes us to the next step is where we need to go. So people will tell me it's not okay to to just advocate for cage-free eggs, for example. Mm -hmm. And we advocate for that because it reduces the suffering of those animals. Because of the same reason you're saying... Um, you know, you shouldn't go for the impossible burger because it's Roundup ready soy, right? Mm -hmm. But it is better. It reduces the problem. And I think when you're overwhelmed with these system changes, you have to look for the steps of progress rather than all or nothing. Like, and the steps of progress get us closer and closer to that end goal. So once we've kind of gotten to that next step, it'll be easier to get to the next step and the next step and the next step. And I think that's important to focus on. Um, The Impossible Burger, is it the most healthy environmental product possible? No. Beans and, I don't know, rice are probably, right? (laughs) Who's going to eat that every day? Me. (laughs) I do, too. I hear you. I do, too. I eat black beans and rice like four days a week with my family, and we love it. But when I'm on the road and most people are having busy lives, they're not doing that. And I, of course, the most healthy sustainable diet you can eat is a plant-based whole food diet. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if you can't do that though, if we can't get like, we need to remember that and keep people going that direction. But at the same time, people aren't going to stop going to fast food restaurants overnight. So we need to step in with something alternative as we move towards that world we want.
2: Right. Well, it's kind of, so you're, I mean, it, your philosophy is sort of the same when you're talking about the steps, right, to get Purdue to make chickens' lives better. It's progress, and the same thing in in this example, right? It's sort of the same philosophy. It's, totally, um, yeah. You know, it the, really is. These little steps are good. Um, and one of um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, this transformation program <laughs> that yes. you launched. I don't know why I had to say it in that voice, but it's okay.
1: <laughs> I can't say trans. anymore. I always say transformation (laughs) now. I actually can't say the other word, the right word
2: anymore. Great. That's probably going to happen to me now. (laughs) So yeah, I'm really interested in this. So this is a a program where you're essentially, you know, when we talk about this transition from, you know, going from fewer animal-based foods, to more plant-based foods, where, what is going to happen to the farmers who are growing um, these um, animal- Based foods, so this program is going to potentially help contract farmers transition from animal agriculture to growing plants. Um, mm-hmm. How how will that work? <laughs>
1: well, yeah, it's a good question, and I don't have the exact answer. So I can tell you what the project is. Okay. So basically, it's everything we've been talking about. Like basically, farmers are victims of the industrial animal agriculture system too, and they are often. You know, um, have very restrictive contracts that leave them as indentured servants and unable to get out, um, along with the tons of waste that's being produced, the serious health issues, the financial burden, um, and then, of course, all the animal abuse, but that happens as a kind of inherent part of the system. Now, as animal rights advocates, we've often been seen in rural areas, we come in and we're seen as just people who are there to take away things, take away jobs, take away food, take away a, a way of life, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is is get rid of something that is abusive to everyone and construct something good. And so the project really is about um, reconstructing that uh, narrative to say, as we are trying to construct a compassionate food system together. Mm -hmm. And we want to, the concept is to facilitate an alternative income model for factory farmers and create a strong network of farmers, academics, engineers, and business people to support the growth of this alternative economy. So, we launched a website which is the transformationproject.org. Um, we had an exclusive of the Atlantic that came out, kind of detailing the project and per- detailing a particularly wonderful farmer that we worked with named Mike Weaver.
2: Mm. I actually West just Virginia. saw him at this conference I was at too. <laughs> I saw oh, pictures was that, of his was farm. in DC. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Oh, you probably saw my coworkers there too, I'm sure.
2: Probably. Actually, they
1: yeah. were, they <laughs> were there. Um, and we did a video about his him transforming his chicken farm into a hemp farm because it turns out that those long warehouses that are used for raising chickens are the a very good environment for also growing hemp and mm-hmm. this is like an environmentally friendly way to stay on the land pay the bills that someone like mike weaver and i can get behind and this really inspired us seeing this example that there must be other ways to facilitate this change and so we launched a website, and it has um, a, a way in which farmers can enter their information, get in touch with us. And we have about a dozen farmers right now who are interested in, in doing this. Most of them are chicken farmers. Um, there are some dairy and, and – laying. so when I say chicken, I mean meat, chicken, broiler farmers. Mm-hmm. And then there's also some laying hen dairy farmers who are like, yeah, I'm interested in getting out of this. I want to do something else that doesn't use animals, that still makes income – and offsets whatever debt they have that's fair to the farmers and it's kind to the land and kind to the animals. So we've hired an ag economist to help us kind of crunch the numbers. We launched this video, we launched the project and we secured media to kind of shake the tree and see who is interested. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's a ton of people interested, like not just the farmers, but there's business people, there's engineers, there's media, there's other NGOs thinking about this as well. Right. Um, And we want to take essentially five to 10 farmers and really cost out and project manage out like what it would look like to transform their farm. We, we really video all of that. We tell their stories and share all of the details. So it would be an open source project um, and see what we learn. It'd be a one-year pilot to start with, um, starting in January, and we'd see see where we get to. Um, the average debt on a farm, though, is seven hundred fifty thousand right. dollars for a farmer. It's no joke. So, um, and you can't just say I'm bankrupt because usually these farms that we're working with um, are their type of bankruptcy that they could file for would mean they don't get their land taken away but they still owe the money so if they try to start another venture they also have to pay off their debt still
2: right and a lot of that debt is often tied up in those houses and the barns right. and i mean that yeah. that was what struck me about mike's story was that he had figured out a use for the barns because so many of those farmers are like what what else can you do with this massive structure mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, that's
1: the question we need a, like mushroom farming solar or other mm. um, we talked about hydroponic lettuce with another farmer in West Virginia kind of converting them to greenhouses like opening the tops up um, and allowing light in they are like environmentally temperature controlled houses so they have these uh, they're long houses that have moisture and temperature control and they have the computer systems already installed to do that and so it's just finding this um, narrow kind of not narrow, not that narrow, this temperature and moisture level that would grow the things. Mushrooms is a really solid option, mm. um, and hemp is a really solid option for, for both, for, for these. And so there are other, there's a, there's a farm um, called the Barrett Farm that's also looking at uh, mushroom farm conversion that's working with the Rancher Advocacy Program, which is another uh,
2: NGO that's working in this
1: space. Um, and Miyoko's, who is, uh, I don't know if you know Miyoko's Cheese, which is a plant-based cheese. Oh,
2: right. They're converting a dairy, right? They're
1: converting a dairy farm, Mm. and they're going to be working with dairy ranchers in their area in Northern California. So it's really an idea whose time has come, and I think we're uniquely one of the only animal rights organizations kind of working in that space, so I think that is different than, but I think you've got a business doing it, you've got an ex-rancher doing it, but we're all, you know, advocating for the same thing, which is this compassionate food
2: system, right? Well, and will you be looking at the the buyer side? Because I would imagine mm-hmm. that's probably the the hardest part. Is you know, if the farmers are going to make this change, um, the attractive thing with with something like contract poult- poultry farming is you have the contract when you're going into it, and you know someone's going to buy it, right? <laughs> you're like, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, sort of. <laughs> There's obviously a lot yeah. that goes wrong, but. But th- that's the understanding: is that you have this buyer set, and for someone who's gonna, you know, switch to growing mushrooms or yeah. lettuce, like it, it, if there isn't someone on the other side committed to buying that product, 100%. it could be scary. Yeah,
1: and and it is very scary, and it's it's the core problem actually, mm-hmm. um, because you could figure out the farmers are innovative; they could figure out how to grow it. But what's the genius of the the integrated chicken? system is that they've got it all sewn up from from the grazing to the plate you know Mm -hmm. and so it's all one system and we don't have something like that in the alternative space so Miyoko is a great example where you've got the buyer already you know forging a path Mm -hmm. to find the products and we need more more Miyoko's out there so we need you know Beyond Meats and others to kind of be doing a very similar thing.
2: Right, to actually be actively changing the supply chain
1: um, yeah, as a buyer. Yeah. Right, right. So, people like Craig, so Craig Watts and I looked at turning his farms into mushroom farms. And he also has some land. And we talked about using some of his to grow yellow peas, which is like this pea protein that's being mm-hmm. used in a lot of the um, Impossible and Beyond Burgers, Beyond Burger in particular. Um, and it's all of that seemed feasible, though not a great moneymaker in in that sense, but th- it fell through with distribution. Like, where were we going to send it? And even those, like, in beyond meat distribution or processing centers are far, far away from North Carolina. Mm. So yeah. almost what needs to happen is, like, a alternative um, plant-based chicken product needs to be set up in the places where the current chicken companies are, and they need to be... Um, taking on these farms, and right? It's, it's their, you know, which is a, not an easy, I, I don't pretend like I have this, this is definitely going to work, <laughs> but it's worth exploring. It's really, you know, it's worth it because you can't just say to these farmers, like, you know, when tobacco fell out, there was huge poverty yeah. in these areas. And so we don't want the same thing to happen if we could help it. Right. If we transition the economy away from these um, environmentally intensive um, animal agriculture systems.
2: Yeah. And I mean, there's, that's happening all over with dairy farmers right now. So many are going out of business. So, I mean, if there were alternatives that were set up where people could just Uh use them, that would be incredible. Yeah. 100%. Well, I'm looking forward to um, seeing the, you know, seeing the trajectory of transformation and um, seeing what these farmers come up with and what you come up with. Me too. Um, Thank you so much for being here, Leah. I appreciate it.
1: Of course. I really enjoyed talking to you.
2: All right. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week.
0: This program is powered by Simplecast.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.